Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, I'm curious, what are your thoughts around pre-market approval for class three medical devices? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? If your product fits within that classification requiring a PMA, is that something you're excited about? If you're like most, I would guess the answer to that is probably no. You're, you're probably not excited about that. You might even look at that as a kiss of death for that new product that you're trying to develop. But what if you didn't have to look at it that way? What if you can embrace the concept and the ideas around PMA as a, a way to bring a novel, unique device to market? I would encourage you to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast where Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I explore the PMA topic in a little bit more depth. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And today I have my good friend from Vascular Sciences, Mike Drews. Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Yeah, likewise. So the uh, recently you and I dove into this topic of, of PMA pre-market approval. Um, largely, you know, surprisingly, there's not a ton out there for for companies on this particular topic. And and actually, when we spoke the last time, I think we debunked some of the common myths on the PMA topic. You know, I, I remember it used to be. Uh, people perceive PMA, uh, and they may still even today, if, they, if their device is class three and is going to require the PMA path, it was like a kiss of death. And, and I think uh, you, you did a really good job of explaining why that may not be the case. And I know there's a little bit more that we can jump into today on the 510K. I, I think there's some some things that we can get into, uh, some of the things that are new and different and maybe throw out some ideas. So what do you think? Can we Can we explore this topic a little bit more today? I think that would be wonderful, John. I think, regrettably, you're exa- you're exactly right. Um, there are a lot of reasons why people and companies are very reluctant to consider uh, developing a, a Class Three PMA device. Some of which we talked about last time. Uh, but on the flip side, there are some um, so, some ways that are being discussed to make it a little bit more attractive for companies to do this. And one of them is to reduce the clinical data, the clinical burden requirements. For example, there's one proposal, and I'll throw it out there, John, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But there's one proposal out there that's been floated uh, to basically let companies market a Class three device in the U.S. if the EU has already approved it with little or no uh, clinical data from here in the United States, of course, the advantage would be to get devices out onto the market sooner for the benefit of U.S. um, uh, customers with less testing, including less clinical data. And then the compromise, of course, would be to use post-market surveillance uh, or, you know, post-market clinical data to kind of figure out uh, after the fact if these devices are safe enough. 
I'm just curious, John, um, keeping in mind that we're talking about the class three universe, which by definition is uh, uh, often life-sustaining or life-supporting devices, often devices that involve more complex technologies than class two, 510K or, or de novo devices, as well as uh, devices that are intended to to, to diagnose or treat much more complicated pathophysiological conditions. Do you think this is a, a good idea, John? Well, it is an interesting idea. Let, let me put it in that category first. You, you know, it's, um, it's, I know a lot of people struggle with why are there different pathways for regulatory clearance? You know what? It would be nice if I could do one submission to a regulatory body and for that to be recognized uh, other parts of the world. And, and I think there, there's some credence to that argument, uh, especially today, especially with the, the work that's been done on like the, the medical device single auto program for, for uh, quality management systems for companies. I think there's, you know, that FDA is, is gung-ho and very much behind that program and, and endorsing that very strongly these days. Uh, it's an interesting idea, and I know historically though that that's that hasn't that hasn't meant a whole heck of a lot. So you know what would have to change from a regulatory perspective, from from regulatory agency perspective, in order for that to to be okay. I mean, it seems like there would have to be like one submission to address the needs of all markets, more like an MBSAP, but more on the on the submission side. Well, it's an interesting metaphor. Uh, you know, it's an interesting comparison, John, to the MDSAP program. There is some similarity. Um, I think, uh, from a regulatory perspective, this idea of allowing Class Three devices onto the market quicker, based on an EU approval, is a little bit backwards when you think about it. Because if we're going to if we're going to use this model for anything, uh, maybe we should start out with the lower risk devices, maybe five ten k devices that are already on the market in this in the EU with say a CE mark. Um, allow them to get quicker onto the market here in the United States. And to a certain extent, this is already being done. You and I talked uh, recently about the alternative 510K that uh, Dr. Gottlieb, the commissioner of FDA, started touting back in December. Whether it's truly an alternative or not, I'll leave that to the audience to decide. But I just think it's... um, let me put it this way. I think it's a risky proposition to start out with the most risky devices yeah. uh, to allow them, you know, onto the market here in the United States. Let's, you know, all of us, you know, we have to remember, John, that uh, the FDA has a difficult job to do. And, you know, what we're really talking about here are some very fundamental questions like what is safety, how safe is safe, how, t- how much testing is enough. Um, and it just seems to me that uh, doing this with with class three with PMA devices, um, it's an interesting idea, but it's also a bit of a risky proposition. No, it's a really good point. I mean, you know, and and, and you raise uh, the the real value might be in the lower uh, class devices. There might be that might make a lot more sense. You know, for for as you stated, the obvious reasons. Um, so you know, and it'll also be, I think, really interesting to see what happens in Europe these next couple of years. Uh, for all intents and purposes, everything that I've read and heard and, and learned about the new EU MDR, uh, it's going to be quite the mess for for device companies. Um, which you know, um, FDA has an initiative right now to be to promote innovation and for companies to bring products to market first in the United States and. And just the forces of, of political uh, nature and regulatory nature in Europe just might drive uh, that FDA initiative to become a reality. So that, it'll be interesting to see. 
Well, you're right, John. And, um, you know, although some people might not want to believe it, there are a tremendous amount of politics uh, between our side of the pond and the EU side of the pond, including, you know, who gets devices first. You know, obviously, we want devices to get onto the market as quickly as we can. But on the other hand, we also want to make sure that we get only the devices that we really want on the market, the ones that are safe and effective, and not the others. There's another change that people have been talking about uh, in the PMA world when it comes to uh, post-market reporting requirements, especially when there are problems with devices like, for example, device malfunctions. Um, As as you and your audience probably know, John, the current regulation requires medical device companies to report malfunctions within 30 days of them occurring. But based on your experience, John, do you think that is reality? Do you think that happens most of the time? Uh, I'm going to say no. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, I, and I've got a few anecdotal experiences from companies I worked with over time. And the people who hear about the issue uh, from a company, you know, they're, they're often, not always, but a lot of times it might be field sales resources or just you know, field service people or what have you. And it seems like there is a big, a big disconnect uh, from people from a company learning about you know events and that information getting back to to the headquarters if you will and to the right people to do something about that you know and and my experience has also been that by the time somebody hears about it uh the event you know certainly several days uh prior if not sometimes a couple weeks it's almost mentioned as uh as oh by the way this thing happened the other day you know and and doesn't seem like that's taken as serious as it should. Well, regrettably, John, your personal, your anecdotal experience is actually reflective of the entire industry. Let me share with you some industry statistics that, quite frankly, are are pretty humbling, are pretty sobering, at least to me. Um, As I said a moment ago, the current regulation requires that medical device malfunctions be reported within 30 days. However, the reality is just simply not the case. When we look at 2016, uh, which is the most current statistics that I have, there were over 300,000 cases of overdue adverse events reports. In other words, uh, device malfunctions that were not reported to the FDA during that initial 30-day window, which is clearly what the regulation requires, more than 300,000. So we're not talking about uh, one or two uh, examples, and some of them from some of the largest medical device companies on earth. I don't know about you, John, but I think that's totally inexcusable, and uh, we need to do better. I mean, what what do you think the the underlying issue is, or you know, the root cause of this? Do you have any anything you want to speculate on? Well, that's a good point, John. I I do think, although the the statistics are indeed humbling, I do think we have to be careful about overgeneralizing. Uh, I'm sure in some of those situations, those some of those three hundred thousand uh, uh, cases, some of them were legitimate. In other words, maybe the company was undergoing an investigation to determine what we as engineers would call the root cause of the problem before reporting it. 
But regrettably, John, I think most of the time, either uh, either it was delayed by simple bureaucracy or paperwork. Perhaps in some cases, people didn't know they were supposed to report within 30 days. Um, I think there can be a number of different reasons. Uh, but overall, I think that statistic is, uh, is, is pretty humbling. So yeah. as a result of this, FDA has proposed creating a um, to, to make it a little bit less burdensome for companies to do it, and they've created what's called a retrospective summary reporting program uh, for these late filers. It's kind of like uh, you know we we filed our our income taxes here in the United States not long ago. It's kind of like an extension for late filers. In other words, if you can't file your income taxes by the due date of April 15th, you can put in an extension. However, the the IRS puts a caveat on that. It's an extension to file. It's not an extension to pay. You still have to pay by April 15th, and then you can file your, your taxes uh, you know, within a few months after that. I think the FDA could propose a similar model. This is an extension to do something about the problem if you have not determined yet what the underlying root cause is, but I don't think it should be an extension to report. I think we should still have to report those problems within that that thirty day window. Um, yeah. So, for example, there were there were seventy five thousand reports of malfunctions of a single brand of drug pump, uh, drug pump, uh, a type of an infusion pump that uh, basically led to FDA allowing a manufacturer to combine all of those into a single summary. So 75,000 reports uh, into a, a, a single summary. What do, you, what do you think of that, John? Is that a, is that a good idea? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I don't know all the details. Uh, my, my knee-jerk response is no, I don't think that's a good idea um, because, I mean, 75,000 different incidents, I mean, how in the world could you bundle those into a single report? It sounds like, well, the other thing that my initial reaction is, it sounds like this pump has a big problem. If there's 75,000 incidents, it sounds like there's a significant issue with this thing. So uh, I don't know, some flags, uh, red flags raised when, when you mentioned that that particular example. I, it, it seems like uh, the company was, was given a, a pretty easy path uh, and, and almost like, you know, this wasn't taken very seriously from this company's perspective. So, well, I think those the, the points that you just make, John, are are very valid. I, you know, as as you as you very well know, and as your audience knows, I tried to take a, a commonsensical approach to regulation and everything that we do and we talk about, including what we're talking about here. So, to me, it doesn't bother me if we combine even as many as seventy five thousand instances into a single summary, if. And this is the big caveat if they're all related to the same problem. In other words, if, if, if they are all indeed caused by the, the very same or very, very similar problem, then to say that, you know, to issue 75,000 reports that are exactly the same as one another, not only would that be overkill, but that would just, uh, you know, bring the system to a grinding halt. You know, so if we're sure that uh, that all of these reports are you know very very similar. In other words, they have the same root cause. Then I don't have a problem with it. If on the other hand, that there are seventy five thousand different causes of this problem, then I don't know that it's necessarily appropriate to include them all in a summary, unless all of them are still, uh, although they're different, they might be very low criticality. They might be very easy to fix. 
that kind of thing. So I, uh, again, I think we have to use common sense. We have yeah. to use what attorneys call the reasonable test here. Yeah. And so as a result of all of this, as a result of, um, of, of so many companies not turning in their reports on time, what FDA is proposing is to extend the deadline from 30 days to 60 days if the malfunctions don't result in death or serious injury. So again, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but let's keep in mind, John, that hindsight is always twenty twenty. How do we know if uh, a problem uh, did didn't result in death or serious injury until we investigate it? So I kind of, you know, I, I think the problem here, John, is it reminds me of one of the local high schools near where I live, where not enough kids were were passing the the graduation test. So what did they do? They lowered the bar. They lowered the the passing score so that more kids would pass. I think at a certain extent, what FDA is doing here is they're saying, okay, not enough companies are doing it within 30 days. Therefore, let's lower the bar and let's give them more time. You know, like everything, there's advantages and disadvantages. On the upside, they would give it more time for companies to complete these investigations in order to avoid reporting these events that don't meet the threshold for reporting. And this would create a a lower regulatory burden on manufacturers. It would improve FDA surveillance of device safety. These are all certainly admirable goals, but we have to use some common sense. Most importantly, and this is the, I think the most important thing for our audience to remember, John, is when we do learn of problems with the device, we have an obligation, never mind regulatory, never mind quality, never mind, you know, whatever you want to call it, a professional obligation, an ethical obligation to investigate and to try to find out as quickly as we can uh, the severity of the problem, what led to the problem, and most importantly, what can be done to try to avoid having it happen in the future. Yeah, it it does feel like uh, a Band-Aid is being applied with this, this proposal. It doesn't really feel like it's addressing the the real issue. Um, and, you know, I know there was some communication. I, I can't remember where I read it. I think you and I spoke about it. I don't, I don't know if it was on a podcast, but just talking one day that there there's some program that uh, FDA has, has discussed as well about uh, having some bundling efforts to sort of have a, like a frequent um, review of of events or adverse events and and you know product performance and things in the field, uh, I think there was the program that was suggested was something about doing a quarterly report or something like that. Do, do you recall the details of that? Yeah, you're right, John. So as a result of everything that we've been talking about in the last few minutes, FDA is actually ex- considering expanding this program and allowing companies to bundle similar complications uh, into summaries. And um, instead of submitting them either once every month or once every two months to be able to submit them quarterly, I actually think that that's got some advantages. Um, but that would be for a summary only that we would have to put a number of caveats on that, a number of limitations, like for example, uh, for, you know, non life threatening, non, you know, non fatal kinds of problems. Um, I, I, I think, and this might generate a tiny bit more paperwork for companies, but I think that reporting the problems within a shorter period of time, perhaps, 30 days as is currently required, and then following that up with a quarterly or annual 
summary report, um, that would be actually a good idea because that would kind of help us see the forest through the trees. Um, and there's a lot of precedent for this from the quality world, John, as you certainly know, when it comes to complaints and CAPAs and so on. One of the things that I've always encouraged companies is not to look at your complaints or your cap is just simply individually, as many companies do, but periodically, whether it's once a quarter, once once every six months, once a year, periodically, uh, you know, look at all of the complaints in the CAPAs to try to see if there are relationships between them that you might not see if you considered them only individually. I think applying that same sort of logic to the to the PMA world and uh, specifically to reporting adverse events could have some benefits. Do you think that's uh, that has some some advantages, John? Yeah, I, I like the idea a great deal. I mean, it's um, it, it's similar in respects, at least in in the methodology, at least when I think about it, to what companies are should be doing already, and and that's a, a management review. Uh, I know, you know, even as I let the words escape my mouth, I know a lot of companies when they do management review, it's they they do the bare minimum, they they do it annually, and they treat it a lot like a checkbox uh, because you know they're obligated to do that. But if if you take the intent behind uh, management review seriously, you know, in my opinion, my advice would be to do that more frequently throughout the year. I think quarterly is is a good frequency. Uh, and I think if if you looked at you know we're talking about PMA devices especially I think if you look at the most the highest risk the the, the products that are uh, saving and sustaining lives and doing some sort of quarterly report or quarterly review I, I don't think that's egregious I think that's that should be what we're doing anyway to manage our our business you know we are trying to save lives here so we should should not um, not look at that as a burden we should look at that as this is being proactive I agree. Well, I could not agree with you more, John, and I would like to think that we would not need regulation to remind companies to do these kinds of things, that they would do them because, you know, it is the right thing to do. But unfortunately, I guess not everybody looks at it that way. And uh, just one last thing I would say on on this topic. Uh, Again, we have to apply a little reasonableness here. So I don't like regulation that's universal, that's absolute. In other words, I don't like regulation that says I have to report things every 30 days or every 90 days or once a year. I think we need to be able to use our own judgment. So, for example, if we're working on a device that uses well-established technology, in other words, the technology has been around for a very long time, maybe there are multiple multiple companies and multiple devices that have been using this technology for a long time, if the risks are well understood, if the disease is well understood, then I have a, no problem reporting those problems in a, in a less frequent fashion. On the other hand, if you're work, if you're using a device that uses technology that's very new and novel and not well established, there's not a lot of history on it. Then I think we have to make more of an effort to uh, to monitor and to report things because it is it is simply new. To me, as an engineer, John, that's simply common sense. No, I agree. And so I think. The, yeah, I was I was go gonna ahead. I was just gonna offer that, and this might. Uh, be a tangent for today's conversation, uh, so we can we can table it if need be. But uh, as as we've been talking about this, it seems like you know FDA has a the, the pre submission program uh, for you know a vehicle for companies to be able to collaborate and communicate with FDA prior to any sort of five ten k or PMA. And it seems like that that model might have 
some opportunity for uh, a collaboration with FDA and with with companies on more of a post market uh, fashion as well, like maybe a, a post submission. Um, so, I don't know, just an idea, um, just a way to be able to communicate those types of things with FDA. Well, you know, John, I think that's a wonderful idea. And to be honest, I'm a little envious. I'm a little jealous because that's not something that I thought of myself. But, you know, we have obviously a lot of free subs that we do today. You and I have talked about these many times. As, as you and your audience know, I spend an awful lot of my time doing free subs with companies. But maybe we need a post-sub uh, version of a meeting uh, to be able to address some of these kinds of concerns as well. I think that would be um, that would be an interesting discussion. All right, so, so, the, so the, noodle that one, and we'll and we'll explore that maybe downstream. <laughs> but but there was there was a I thing that uh, there was a thing that that um, you sent me an email um, recently, and I I don't think there was a lot of substance in in the email. It might have just been the subject line, um, but it was something around uh, finding a new. PMA pathway for non-Me Too's. And it was intriguing. And I think that's actually what sparked the whole idea of you and I spending a little bit of time uh, talking about PMA. So so what do you mean? What did you mean by that? So that's, uh, thanks, John, for bringing that up. So everything that we've t- talked about thus far um, have been new ideas that are being talked about um, uh, in a variety of circles. This last idea that you brought up, uh, creating a separate uh, path way for class three devices, for devices that are truly new or novel. That's a microsism. That's something that I have been thinking about over the last year or so. And here's the idea. You know, a lot of people think there are not a lot of me too's in the PMA world. Uh, there are obviously, you know, a 510K by definition is, is, is a me too. And in the class two, in class one universe, the way we separate the Me Too's versus the devices that are truly novel is the Me Too's can get onto the market with the 510K and devices that are truly new or novel, they get onto the market under the de novo. In the class three universe, we make no distinction. Um, there are a ton of Me Too devices in the class three universe. Um, I could give you a number of examples, but let's just take one of my favorites, the bare metal coronary stent. Never mind even the drug living stent, just a bare metal coronary stent. I did a search on this recently. There are over 500 bare metal coronary stent PMAs that have come through the FDA over the last 20 years or so that we've had coronary stents, over 500. The vast majority of them are what I would consider as a biomedical engineer and nothing more than me too's. Yes, there are, there are, they have subtle differences in their design. Maybe the, 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 the shape of the hypotube is slightly different. Maybe the, the bend of the wire is, is slightly different. But listen, at the end of the day, their mechanism of action is exactly the same. They're doing what they're doing in the body exactly the same way as the others. So in order to help sort of differentiate the, the, the truly me too, I'm sorry, the truly new and novels from the me too's, maybe we need a de novo like pathway for the class three universe so that FDA could apply more resources to those truly new and novel class three devices and perhaps less resources if you're coming to the market with a device that even though it's class three, even though it's PMA, even though it's life supporting or life sustaining, is still basically a copy of what's already out there. 
I think, you know, if it makes sense to have a de novo pathway for class one and two devices, it probably makes sense to at least have a discussion about the merits of having a similar pathway in the class three universe. The, that's sort of the, the logic, that's sort of the thinking of it, John. I'm just throwing it out as a as a, a topic of discussion. Maybe there are advantages, maybe there are disadvantages, but at least something for people to talk about and for people to think about. And I also think that as an industry, we have an obligation not to wait for FDA to tell us, you know, to give us options. You know, we should not be led like sheep. You know, we should be able to be a shepherd. We should go to the FDA if there is consensus in the industry and say, hey, we need a de novo-like pathway for class three devices. Let's sit down and have a conversation as to how, uh, as to what that might look like. Yeah. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on this uh, de novo-like pathway for a class three product, John. Do you think there would be advantages? Do you think there would be disadvantages? What are your thoughts? You know, every time I, I talk to you, Mike, about regulatory topics, I, I usually leave the conversation with one or two things, uh, sometimes more, that, that I learn. And one of the things I've learned in in previous conversations with you on this topic of regulatory anyway, is that there um, I don't want to say loopholes. That's not the right really word because that sounds like we're not doing something appropriate. But there are uh, there are certain areas of the regulations that are a little bit gray to begin with. And as you were speaking about the de novo opportunity for class three, I uh, the question popped into my head: Couldn't we do that now? I mean, is there anything that prevents us from doing a class three uh, device via de novo, or or is it? cut and dry for a lot of our class three devices as it say, you know, thou shalt do a PMA? Well, that's a good question, John. So there are very, very few regulatory absolutes. There are few um, areas in, in all of regulatory or quality that are black and white. What you just mentioned, John, is one of them. Regrettably, the de novo is limited to class three. I'm sorry, let me say that again. Regrettably, de novos are limited to class two or lower devices. So you could not be, under the current regulation, you could not bring a class three device onto the market under a de novo, at least for the same indication. If you wanted to get into some very sophisticated regulatory strategy, there are examples where one device used one way is a class three PMA, whereas the exact same device used in a separate way is a class two de novo or perhaps even a 510K. But the short answer to your question, John, is in general, you could not use a de novo as it stands now uh, for a class three device. Now, obviously, Congress could change that and add a, you know, a version of the de novo, uh, perhaps as I'm suggesting, for class three devices. But under current regulation, that could not be done. Yeah. All right. Well, um, and anytime you throw Congress in the mix, I mean, that's certainly a wild card for sure. But, but it is an interesting idea. And so, as let me, let me um, kind of pull some of the layers uh, apart of the idea, get to maybe a little bit deeper. So, you know, with the the, the Mike Drew's idea of a Class Three de novo. Would what would that look like? Would it be uh, ostensibly different from a PMA today, or, or you know, do you have, have you vetted the idea a little bit further um, to to kind of think about you know if you were if somebody said, hey, Mike, I need you to make uh, this new this new program, the Class Three to Nova, have you have you put some more thought into what that might look like? 
Well, you know, that's an interesting question, John. And to be honest with you, I haven't given it an awful lot of thought as to the details of what it would look. I think it would be, um, I don't think the, the requirements for this de novo-like pathway for class threes would be significantly different than the PMA for the same reason that when you look at what the de novo requirements are for a class two compared to a 510K, they're really not any different. You know, one of the things, and we've talked about this before, John, one of the things that differentiates my approach to this business as opposed to so many others is I'm a huge fan of doing what makes sense. In other words, to me, I think all of the testing that we should be doing, whether it's benchtop, animal, clinical, what have you, all of that should be predicated on the biology and on the engineering, not on the uh, on the regulatory pathway. So we should not have additional regulatory requirements for a de novo just because it's a de novo. Um, they should be based on the biology and the engineering. So in general, John, I would take the same approach here. I would say that we should not have additional requirements for this de novo-like pathway for class threes just because it's newer novel. But on the other hand, you know, when you think about it, it's common sense. If you're bringing a device onto the market, regardless of the classification, regardless if it's class three or two or even one, if it is using new or novel technology, by definition, the testing requirements should be more robust, should be more comprehensive, maybe even more aggressive, because the technology is new or novel, as opposed to... Um, uh, devices that use technologies that have been around for a long time. Let me use, uh, you know, I mentioned the pyramidal coronary stent uh, a moment ago, John. Let me use that again as an example. A lot of people think that um, all PMAs uh, for a similar device require the similar amount of, uh, of testing. In other words, the same regulatory burden. It's simply not the case. When you look at the first pyramidal coronary stents, and I've been in this game for a long time, John, I was involved in uh, some of the very first stents, we had to do a heck of a lot more testing, benchtop animal and clinical testing for the class three PMA coronary stent. Then fast forward to 20 years later to today, the stents coming onto the market today, comparatively speaking, are undergoing less testing than the ones uh, 20 years ago why? Because that technology is relatively well-established and relatively well-understood. So I think that, um, quite frankly, this de novo-like pathway for, for uh, a Class 3 device, and I also think that just to avoid confusion, we probably should not call it a de novo. We should call it something else. But I think you know this de novo-like pa uh, pathway for Class 3 devices, I think we could take the same or uh, a similar approach not necessarily having more rigorous regulatory requirements, but at the very least, calling it something else, which would allow FDA to kind of separate it from all of the Me Too's that are out there and be able to, as I said earlier, devote more resources to reviewing those products. And granted, there are not that many of them, as opposed to the, the, the vast majority of PMAs that are Me Too's. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and really what, we're, what you're pointing out is, you know, using a risk-based approach from a regulatory uh, review perspective, you know, um, giving FDA, I guess, rationale or justification to um, basically spend more resources on things that are truly unique and novel. And, and I guess the, the more unknown um, theoretically would be a higher risk only because there's more unknown about that. So those are the 
the, the types of submissions that FDA might deploy more resources. And, and I guess that's a, you know, a really great point to kind of wrap up our conversation today. There's, there's probably a few, there's quite a few lessons that, that uh, those listening could apply and, and use uh, to move forward. And I think risk is a big one. Well, once again, John, I think you're spot on correct. And I must say, I'm also very envious, very jealous because you put that better than I ever could. We're taking a risk-based approach, something that all of us are familiar with, at least on paper. But what people, ironic as it might sound, are not really used to thinking of is taking a risk-based approach to regulation. That is uh, regrettably a bit of a novel concept, but uh, maybe it's something that might catch on. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think, interestingly, I mean, regulatory agencies, I mean, I wish this weren't the case, but uh, they've been driving and pushing industry to apply risk-based approaches within their quality system and and product development documentation. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, the reason I say regrettably is I would like to think that we as as companies designing, developing, and manufacturing medical devices would but uh, already be using that logic rather than waiting for regulators to, to come to us with the rules, so to speak. And we've talked a lot about that. But there are probably a few other lessons, at least things that I've picked up as we've talked about this PMA topic. Uh, things like, you know, predicates, you know, does that, does that have any value in a PMA conversation? Well, again, as we talked about in the first part of our uh podcast in our previous podcast, John, although in a regulatory sense, a predicate in the PMA world doesn't have a lot of value in a substantial equivalent sense of the word. I use predicates all the time in the PMA world in terms of risk mitigation and in terms of testing methodology. So, uh, so, so to me, predicates have a tremendous amount of value in the PMA world. Yeah. And you, you mentioned kind of a classic example with bare metal coronary stents. I mean, obviously there, there are, well, you would you say 500 PMAs over the past 20 years. So, uh, there are a lot of predicates that are there from, from a PMA standpoint <clears throat> as it stands today. Um, what are some of the other, uh, things that you would advise uh, companies on on this topic. So I think to wrap this up, John, you know, we've covered a lot, not just in this particular podcast on the PMAs, but the the previous one as well. Um, I, I, I would leave the audience with just a couple of pieces of general advice. First, uh, if you're working in the PMA or class three universe, just like any medical device, uh, don't wait until your actual submission for the first time to share this with the with the FDA. Go to the FDA in advance in the form of a pre-submission meeting. You and I have talked about this many times in the past, John, uh, and present to them your device. Here's what it does. Here's how it works. Here's our regulatory strategy. Here's the testing that we're doing. Uh, here are the clinical trials that we're doing or not. And here are all the reasons why. And make sure you get a meeting of the minds. Make sure that everybody's on the same page. We're pulling in the same direction. Whatever metaphor you want to use, quite frankly, I don't really care, but make sure everybody is in sync so that that will greatly mitigate your risk of problems or delays later on. That's piece of advice number one. And piece of advice number two, when it comes to the more risky devices, the class three devices, um, we should not shy away from them because many people think that because uh, it's more because it's a class three PMA, it's going to be more time, more work, and so on. Those things are often true, but when you think about it, it's supposed to be true because these are devices that are 
oftentimes life-sustaining or life-supporting. These are often devices that involve more complicated uh, technologies than uh, class two or class one devices. These are often devices that are involved in treating much more complex diseases, much more intricate pathophysiologies, oftentimes with comorbidities. These are challenges, but on the other hand, these are challenges that we should not shy away from on the contrary, for me, as a regulatory professional, as well as a professional biomedical engineer, I welcome the opportunity to work on devices like that. I think we need more of them, yeah. not less. Yeah. You know, and folks, for me, I um, every time I, I do these podcasts, uh, I, I leave with something that I've learned and, and a fresh perspective. And, you know, as Mike and I wrap up this conversation on PMAs, um, you know, from the first time that we talked about it to today, you know, my um, I'm I'm gonna confess, Mike. I might have been one of those people that looked at PMA as a kiss of death yeah, at one point in time in my career, um, because you know you, you just perceived that that was going to be longer, more expensive, you you know, a lot of burden on company. But but I agree with you. I mean, the reason that I enjoy being an engineer is not to to design and develop a, a me too product. I want to. I'm a smart person. I want to solve. A problem in a unique way, and you know, I, I, I'll wrap this up with an example that that I worked on. It was a it was a class two device, but it still drove me crazy a few years ago. And, and looking back, I'm, I might have advised a different path. But uh, a person contacted me, and and they had a, a pump device, and I won't go into the specifics, but basically they were um, distributing a, a pump of a different manufacturer. And, you know, they were making okay revenue and they were helping patients and that sort of thing. But he's like, I want to make my own device. I want to put my name on it. And one day this person called me into his office and, and he opened, literally had the, the pump device that he was distributing open. And he's like, I can make exactly this. Let's do that. And that's more or less what he did. Yeah, and, and looking back, it's like, you know, was that the best approach? And I would um, definitely argue uh, now, no, it was not the best approach because just opening uh, somebody else's product or you know, just looking at somebody else's product and saying, I want that, but I want to do it slightly different, um, you know, that reduces what you're, you're doing to a commodity status. Uh, you didn't use your own brain, your own thought. You didn't understand you know, ways to make that product better, to, to raise the bar, so to speak. And I think we have a responsibility as medical device pro- professionals to, to raise the bar, to, to try to improve uh, the human experience through our devices that, that we're bringing to market. So, um, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Well, once again, John, I could not agree with you more. Um, one of the things I think I started out with in the beginning of our first podcast on this topic is the statistic that 90 to 95% of the medical devices that come to market here in the United States are class two and class one devices. And only five to 10 devices, uh, sorry, five to 10% devices are class three devices, either PMA or HDE or something similar. Um, I think that's unfortunate. I think that we need more efforts going on in the class three universe. But on the other hand, you know, I have to acknowledge the reality. I did not just fall off the turnip truck yesterday for a small company or a startup to be going to uh, investors, to angels or VCs. I can tell you, um, and it pains me as an engineer to say this, John, but if you tell a potential investor that your new device is probably a class three PMA, 
that is often the end of the discussion, the end of the conversation. Don't let yep. the door hit you on the way out. Yep. You know, and um, that is a reality, but there are ways that we can overcome it. And I work with companies all the time to make this palatable to all sides. But, yeah. you know, we do not, not to get too philosophical here, but we, knew have, we do have to consider the greater good as well, not yeah. just the business. Yeah. And Mike, I, I'm going to let that be the last word for today. I want to thank once again, Mike Drew is president of Vascular Sciences for being my guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you to, to reach out to Mike if you have questions on regulatory strategy. And if you'd like to do a little bit more on your, your quality management system, you'd like to learn about a quality management system that is designed uh, for the medical device industry by medical device professionals to streamline your workflows for design controls risk, as well as all the post-market activities, things like CAPAs and complaints, then I would encourage you to reach out to us at Greenlight Guru. Just simply go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And let's wrap up today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>